Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. My name is John Leahy. Thanks so much for being with us this week on the podcast. We had a great show last week. Uh, as you um, might have remembered, uh, I'm involved in, a, in, in an in an endeavor now where I'm talking to the uh, radio broadcasters of the teams that Merrimack is playing on a weekly basis uh, during the college hockey season. Last week, we were joined by Donnie Morehouse, who is the longtime radio voice of UMass Hockey. Merrimack and UMass met this past weekend, and it was a real tough weekend for the Warriors. They lost two heartbreakers Friday night at home, 2-1, to one, with uh, 4.7 seconds to go on Friday, and then on Saturday, losing in overtime after tying up the game in the final minute of play. So uh, Merrimack has been on a stretch of some real tough opponents. BU a couple of weeks ago, a split, then UMass. And uh, this weekend, Merrimack will be taking on the Boston College Eagles. And it is my great pleasure to bring in a great friend, a guy who's been at BC for a long, long time, does their radio. His name is John Risch. John, thanks so much for being with us. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, John. I love that intro music. You can't see me, but I was tapping my toes the whole time. Well, you know, we endeavor to make our guests feel right at home here on the podcast. And I <laughs> I happen to think that's one of the coolest fight songs, if not the coolest in all of sports. So I'm glad you enjoyed oh, it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, John, there's a lot I'd like to get to with you. I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, also, uh, we, we'll talk about the upcoming weekend here between uh, BC and Merrimack and I guess the first thing I want to talk about, John, I know you've done a lot of baseball work over the years and with the Red Sox and Nesson. And I think the first thing I have to bring up is the passing of, of Jerry Remy uh, last week. Uh, such a great, great loss to everyone uh, who knew him. I know you knew him personally. You, you did a lot of games in the booth and you met Jerry and work with him. And uh, maybe I could start by just asking you your thoughts about Jerry as a person and, and his passing and what it means uh, to Red Sox Nation. And, and what it also uh, means to you personally. Yeah, so Jerry is such an interesting guy. You know, I'm not old enough to remember Jerry as a player. I only know Jerry as a broadcaster. And for me, the thing that I'll remember about Jerry is that on day one, you know, Jerry took the time to get to know me and welcomed me into it's a you know pretty small world, right? You know, broadcasters at the major league level and. Yeah, he treated me like I belong there, and that's really important when you're young and you're just starting out and you're trying to establish yourself at that level. You know, to get acceptance from other broadcasters is extremely valuable. And you know, Jerry accepted me pretty early on, and I I will never forget that. And that was when I was just you know starting out doing pregame and postgame work for the Red Sox radio network, and then. Later on, I would actually have a few chances to work in the Nesson booth with him and broadcast a few games with him. And, um, you know, it's not easy to, like, fill in for someone like Don Orsillo and work with Jerry. True. Um, but he, he, he made it easy. Yeah, and, and I can definitely see how he would. I mean, you know, uh, and a lot of times people ask, I guess, is that Jerry's real personality in the booth? And I, I kind of think it was because I was reading his book recently, the one he co-authored with Nick Cafardo, and Sean McDonough, uh, who wrote the foreword for the book, um, kind of kind of indirectly took credit for helping uh, Jerry bring his true per personality uh, there in the booth. Yeah, no, I think it is, right? He's genuine, right? So the one thing I will say about uh, Jerry that maybe not every Red Sox fan realizes is that He's a pretty private person. 
right? right? And he is not terribly outgoing. You know, he has that personality, which comes through and comes across so well as a broadcaster on the telecast. But before the game or after the game, you know, he would have his routines and, you know, he wouldn't be a, the kind of guy that was very, very outgoing. If you got to know him, he was a great friend, as loyal as they, you know, they would, you, you could come. Um, if, if you were his guy, you were always his guy. Um, but he was kind of a quiet, private, reserved person. And I think Sean is right. You know, Sean is obviously one of the most talented broadcasters of our generation. Um, and the most important thing, right, any play-by-play guy can do in television is to bring out, highlight, and make the analyst look good. He was able to do that with Jerry. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can't help but think back to uh... – you know, the, the people that Jerry worked with in the booth, and I, I know you had a chance to work with, with a lot of them too, Dave O'Brien and Dennis Eckersley, but but probably the most uh, vivid memories I have was with, was the work he did with Don Arcillo and, and kind of the backlash that, that Nesson had to deal with when they decided to move on from Don and Jerry. Yeah, no, that was that was tough. And I think that um, I think the whole thing probably could have been handled a little bit better, um, you know, and I don't want to try and put words in Don's mouth, but I would think that, you know, that probably the whole thing could have been handled a little bit better. Don um, gave a lot to that organization, and that's just my own personal opinion. He probably deserved a little bit better. Now, having said that, that has nothing to do with Dave O'Brien. Dave O'Brien is an excellent broadcaster in his own right, and so the Red Sox telecasts are in good hands in that respect. But I thought Don was a tremendous broadcaster for them and a great loss. Absolutely, John. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your background and and your and how you got started in sports broadcasting. I know that uh, you did a lot of work for uh, the radio station there at BC, which was uh, WZBC, and then you inter- you uh, interned with Dale Arnold at uh, WEI. So maybe you could just reflect back on those experiences and, and tell us how you got started. It's it's kind of funny when you think back. Um, Boston College is not what you would consider to be a high powered broadcast school. Yet the radio station had a very small but core group of people that worked uh, at WZBC in the sports department in particular. And so I graduated in 1994. Um, in 1992, I, John Shomby graduated. We worked together at ZBC. And then the next year, Bob Wischusen and Joe Tessitore both graduated class of 93. So, you know, at that time, I was really lucky to be looking up to you know, Joe and Bob, John, you know, they were great role models for me at ZBC as a young student. And so the internship came through Bob. Bob had an internship, would have been my sophomore year, um, also at WEI, where he was also interning on Dale's show and doing some other stuff there. And so I'm like, you know, I need something to do for the summer, the summer between, um, Maybe it was my junior and senior year. Yeah, I guess it was the, my junior and senior year. And so one day I went into what used to be the old Traff building when EI was on 590 AM uh, with Bob. Yep, remember and, those uh, days, yeah. And uh, Jason Wolf, who later became the program director, was Dale's producer at the time. So, you know, I hung out with Bob and, and Jason and Dale for a little bit for like a day. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, we need an intern for the summer. Why don't you come in? 
And that was the end of it. I had an internship that lasted for that summer and then into the fall as well. And it turned out to be a, a huge connection for me, not just in terms of experience, but also meeting those people um, while I was still a college student. Well, how long did it take you, John, to uh, to get involved with the hockey? Did you know right away that you wanted to, to do hockey, or, or how did that how did that uh, come about? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> when when I got to Boston College, my freshman year, the hockey team was pretty good, um, and that was David Emma's senior year. So, you know, that was the Hemline. Uh, Billy Guerin was on that team. They had a lot of really good players, but after that, um, they struggled for a little bit. And so a lot of kids left and went to play for the 92 Olympic team. Um, Len Sigarski was at the end of his career. And by the time my senior year came around, Steve Cedarchuk had become the head coach and the hockey team was really struggling. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, the football programs and the basketball programs were struggling when I got there had really started to take off. So by the time it was my senior year, the most important things to me were the basketball team, which that year went to the Elite Eight, uh, the football team, which upset number one Notre Dame. Tom Coughlin was the head coach. So, you know, when people ask me to this day, like, what are the greatest games you've ever called? You know, my short list is, you know, November of 1993, David Gordon's kick, Boston College beating Notre Dame. I was fortunate enough to call that game for, for student radio. So when I was in school, my focus was football and basketball. And did I follow the hockey? Yes. Did I do a few hockey broadcasts? Yes. But never in a million years did I think hockey was going to be my sport. In fact, to this day, I can barely skate. <laughs> well, uh, interesting stuff, John. Absolutely. Now, when you finished up the internship with uh, Dale Arnold at WEI, uh, where did you go from there? Where, where did the career path kind of evolve from there? Yeah. So, you know, like probably a lot of typical college seniors, I decided that second semester senior year was going to be an enjoyable time in my life and I was going to enjoy my last semester of college. So I gave up the internship at the end of the first semester and then um, I had a pretty good time <laughs> by <laughs> my last my last semester of college. And then, you know, we graduated in May. And after that, we weren't sure exactly, you know, where we were going or what we were going to do. I sent out tapes and resumes and all kinds of stuff, just like everybody else. And then I started at this really small radio station in Rhode Island um, called WICE, which was 5.50 a.m. Wow. And yeah, it was it, it was horrible and, and fantastic all at the same time, right? It was a small station. We didn't have a lot to work with. Um, in, in many respects, it was struggling. You know, those were the things that made it difficult. But the things that were fantastic about it was it was a small station. We were struggling and I got to do everything and I got to make mistakes and learn from my mistakes. And I got airtime. I was on the air every day. And at that stage of my career, that was really, really important. Um, so. Carl Grand hired me. Carl ran the station. Um, I'm not sure if you know Carl or knew Carl, but whose brother George, longtime announcer for the Cincinnati Reds. Um, right. Carl, you know, listened to my demo tape, looked at the resume, said, oh, we'll take a chance on, on this kid. And that was my first job. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, I've always said, John, all you need is one person to believe in you. And, and, you know, I think we all have a chance to look back and say, hey, this one person gave me a chance. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad that they did give you the chance because you you certainly are, you know, one of the best broadcasters uh, in the area. So uh, that's a, that's that's a wonderful thing. Um, I, I know. I noticed also that you spent uh, six years over at ESPN Radio, and yep. uh, tell us a little bit about that. You were a, a radio sports center anchor. Now we associate sports center with television, of course, but uh, tell us a little bit about how that that all got started. Yeah, so there was a um, a little bit of a hockey connection there too. So by the time I started at um, ESPN Radio, I had been doing the BC games for a little while. I mean, maybe like a couple of years. My first year with BC Hockey was 97-98. I think I started doing some freelance stuff for ESPN Radio in 99. But I was lucky to meet Doug Brown. So Doug, you know, he's a BU guy, but what are you going to do? Nobody's perfect. <laughs> um, you know, I, I did some work with Doug Brown that I connected with him through college hockey. And so Doug was uh, employed at the ESPN Radio at the time. And by then I had, you know, I had long since left uh, WICE and I was working like part-time behind the scenes at EEI. And then I was doing sports updates for EEI and I was like trying to figure out like well, where's the next you know like what are some possible things that I could do and so I said hey Doug what do you think you know is there a possibility that maybe they would need somebody to fill in nights and weekends whatever for for doing the updates down in Bristol and he's like yeah sure so he took my tape handed it to the program director at ESPN and that was how I got my foot in the door there and I ended up working there for about six years, right up until I took the job to work in the Red Sox broadcasts. Wow, that's great. You know, when you talk about Doug Brown, I will always remember him because uh, I did a game, the only game I've ever done on television uh, was uh, for ESPNU back in my second year at Merrimack, and Doug did the play-by-play with Scott Pellerin, and I was the the rinkside reporter. So uh, I guess we have a common connection there with uh, Doug. But... uh, I know Doug Doug is a fantastic guy as good as they come you know there's all kinds in this broadcasting business some better than others but none better than Doug absolutely and I do want to return a little bit to a BC hockey shortly but uh, just just a few uh, more thoughts on the Red Sox Uh, John I know you've worked with Joe Castiglione uh, also uh, Joe the Hall of Fame uh, broadcaster for the Red Sox it started in 1983 I wonder if you could maybe share a thought or two about Joe Uh, I've never had the chance to meet him although I did see him down in Baltimore once uh, walking down the street the Lowell Spinners were in Aberdeen Maryland and the Red Sox were in Baltimore I happened to see him down at the Inner Harbor but we never connected but um, what what, uh, just maybe a thought or two about uh, working with Joe and and what kind of a broadcaster he is in terms of preparation and and that sort. Yeah. Joe, Joe is 100% genuine. You know, what you see is what you get. And, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, and, and that's him overall. My own personal relationship was, he treated me like I was his son. You know, mm-hmm. he treated me like a member of his family he would invite me to dinner when we would be in spring training, you know, his wonderful wife, Jan would make dessert. And he, he really honestly treated me like he was, you know, like I was his nephew or like I was his son. And, and I, I, that's the highest compliment I can give to Joe um, as a person, you know, as a broadcaster, 
anyone who ever has listened to Joe knows that he lives and dies with the Red Sox. You don't need to wait for him to tell you what the score is. You can hear it in his voice um, as he's doing the game. And he just loves the Red Sox and he loves the game of baseball. Um, And the, another thing that not everybody might know about Joe is, you know, he's a teacher. His wife was a teacher for years and years and years before she retired, but he is a teacher as well. And he, likes to teach you know he taught at northeastern he taught broadcasting and he's taught and helped and nurtured so many broadcasters along the way including me well so you know you got to wonder how much how much more will will will, uh, joe do with the red Sox? you know he's ageless right i mean every every spring training we hear him on weei and he just loves it so much you can't ever imagine him retiring no, and that's always kind of a, a tricky thing for broadcasters, right? It is a profession that, you know, you can continue to work and work at a high level much longer than many other professions. And right. it also speaks to just, you know, how much uh, broadcasters love it, enjoy it. They've been doing it for so long. They don't know what they would do if they weren't doing that anymore. You know, so it can be very difficult to walk away from that no matter what your age is, when will Joe decide enough is enough? That's a question I can't answer. I would suspect that like so many others, you know, as time goes on, he'll probably, you know, reduce his workload a little more, reduce his workload a little more, but um, he loves it. And, you know, another thing that's interesting about Joe, and this is probably true of a lot of broadcasters is he has friends and acquaintances and people Everywhere he goes, he probably enjoys being on the road more than he does being at home because he's such a people person. You know, every time we would go to a city, there's always someone there he's waiting that, you know, he hasn't seen in a while that he gets to catch up with. And and those connections with those people are really important to him. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And if you read his book uh, that he wrote, he talked about – uh, all the cities he's been, he, t- he tells you where to go to eat, where to go yep. and socialize, and uh, you know that fits in perfectly with with what you just uh, mentioned. Uh, Rights and Sights, I think, is the name of the book that he yep. wrote, and I actually have a copy of it. One other personality I want to bring up, John, I, I know you've uh, worked with him as well as Dennis Eckersley. Uh, Dennis is becoming uh, beloved uh, in his role as Red Sox analyst on Nesson with his colorful language and his colorful way of uh, describing. Uh, the game, and uh, I know you've had a chance to work with him a little bit, but uh, you know, talk talk a little bit about uh, your experiences with Eck. Yeah, I mean, just really, really smart, really, really honest. Um, you know, sometimes that honesty can be so direct, it can be almost um, surprising, because oftentimes, right, you don't get that level of directness or that level of honesty, especially from local broadcasters. Maybe you get a little bit more sometimes from a national broadcaster who's not tied directly to a team. Um, But I think it's fantastic. And I think it's also really important in a market like Boston, in a place like New England, because the fans expect that. They can see for themselves what's going on and they know when you're giving it to them straight and when you're not. And um, I think that's really, really valuable because he, you know, is someone who doesn't know anything else, right? That's the only thing he knows. He'll always tell you the truth directly. And I think for me, that's what really makes him valuable as a broadcaster. Now, on top of all that, he's extremely entertaining. 
he's funny. I don't know where he comes up with his vocabulary. I wish I could think of those types of things to say. Uh, but he's a, he's a, he's a fantastic broadcaster. Yeah, and he's even forgiven Kirk Gibson too for that uh, home run. Then <laughs> Nesson did a little uh, piece well, on that. And, and that's part of who he is, right? Like life hasn't always been easy for Dennis Eckersley. Sure, there's been great highs, but there have been great lows. And you know, living and working through that adversity really makes him what he is today. Absolutely, John. Well, let's talk about your time uh, doing the pregame and postgame uh, on the Red Sox radio network. Uh, you know, it had to have been a big thrill to be around the team every day. And, of course, to have those opportunities, John, to step into the booth when uh, when there was uh, a need uh, to fill uh, when a regular broadcaster. I know you filled in for Don Arcillo uh, one night, and uh, you also filled in for Jerry Remy doing color when uh, he was away from the booth. And uh, so I, I wonder just – Talk about the, the the thrill about being you know around baseball every day and doing the Red Sox pregame and postgame on the Red Sox radio network. Yeah, it was something that I always was interested in. Um, specifically, like my goal as a broadcaster was always play by play, and so yeah. almost everything I did was always in search of that play by play job. Right, if I did a talk show or if I did a pregame show, right? The goal was always to get to the play-by-play opportunities. Right. Everything everything else around it, it's not so much that it was unimportant, but for me, it was like a means to an end. So as much as I enjoyed like doing the pregame or doing the postgame, what I loved and loved then and still love now is the game itself, right? The time between the first pitch and the last pitch. Right. Or, you know, the when the puck drops to the last buzzer sounds like that's the part that's important to me and uh, everything else around it is fine, but it's, it's the game itself that always mattered the most. And so for me, that's what I enjoyed the most. I, and I loved the game and I loved, you know, relaying that game to the listeners. Absolutely. John, and you know, uh, one of the most intriguing things about play by play broadcasting is that, the amount of preparation you do is so exhaustive leading up to the game, but you'll only use a fraction of it on the air. That's what, what I think people who aren't familiar with the industry, uh, they're shocked to learn that. But you 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 overprepare for every broadcast. You don't use everything that you prepare for, and, and uh, that's okay. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, you know, there's all different types of broadcasters, and, and by that I mean, like, when you are involved in a, a major league broadcast or even a minor league broadcast where you are doing the games every single day, day after day after day, you have a level of knowledge and a level of familiarity that just doesn't exist for the person who maybe does a game a week or is traveling around and doing a, a TV game for one team and then a different matchup, right? That's a completely different type of preparation and a completely different type of broadcast but when you are the voice of whatever right when you are joe castiglione and you have not only your day-to-day knowledge but then your institutional knowledge build up on years and years and years of being involved in those broadcasts you know i think that's when something really special can happen because of your connection to the team the players the the staff the coaches you become completely immersed in it Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And uh, 
You know, it's uh, it, it, it's just so uh, enlightening for me to be able to uh, to let people know, you know, really what goes on uh, behind the microphone. People people that don't uh, that don't really understand uh, about uh, how we go about our jobs, and uh, I, I think it's fascinating just to talk about it with you and and and, and get your insights. I'd like to go back to BC hockey here momentarily here, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about a couple of the analysts you've had a chance to work with. Now, John, you began uh, play-by-play in 1998-99 at BC, and I know you worked with Ken Hodge for a while. Ken was uh, by your side, and of course, he played for the Bruins. Uh, how fun was it to have an analyst who actually played in the NHL to uh, give you uh, the analysis that he gave? All right, I'm going to back up a little bit further than Kenny. We'll get to Kenny. All right. So my my first year I did color, which was in 97, 98. So that was the first year that I was involved in the BC broadcast. Yep. And it was, uh, you know, the, one of those things that kind of just like happened to fall into my lap. I didn't expect to be doing hockey and I certainly didn't expect to be doing color. Sean Grandy was the play-by-play voice at that time. Ah, yes, right. And so Sean uh, was doing the games, and he had done them, I think, maybe two or three years prior, but they they had a need for a color guy, right? So the the the, the requis the, the requirements for the job were, um, you know, you needed to have like some kind of connection, right? My connection was BC. You needed to be able to set up the equipment, which I could do, yeah, and you needed to not require a lot of money. Like, okay, I can check all three boxes. I'm, I'm cheap. Right. <laughs> I can set up the equipment <laughs> and I, and I, and I'm an alum. I have this connection to BC. So that first year for one year, I did color with Sean. And then it just so happened, you know, 97, 98 was the year that things really turned around for Jerry York. They ended up going to the national championship game, losing to Michigan in overtime in Boston. That next uh, off season, Sean got the Minnesota Timberwolves job. Okay, yeah. So he leaves after ninety seven, ninety eight, goes out to Minneapolis and starts what is you know a continuing NBA career. The next year and for the next two years, I did the games with Tim Sweeney. So Tim Sweeney um, was recently retired and you know wasn't quite sure like okay what am I going to do now? I'm not going to play hockey anymore. And so for the first two years, I did the games with Tim. And so Tim and I did um, the Frozen Four in Anaheim. And then we did the Frozen Four again the next year in Providence. Uh, BC lost to North Dakota in 2000. And then the next year, Ken, perfect timing for Ken, similar situation to Tim. You know, he had just retired, wasn't quite sure, like, what he was going to do, had the connection to BC, came on for the 2000-2001 season. And, of course, what do we do um, win the national championship. So perfect right. timing for Ken. And so the f- thing I will say about Tim and Ken is that it becomes really apparent when you're, you know, you're in the booth and you're calling the game and, you know, you think you see everything, but then when you start to realize they see things that you don't see. Right. And that's the difference between me or Joe Schmo, who's watched a lot of hockey and someone who has played hockey at the highest level, right? Those guys are NHL caliber players. And part of the reason that they made it so far, aside from just, you know, natural ability and skating is they see the game and they anticipate things before they happen. And they just see things that no matter how hard I try or no matter how many hockey games I watch, 
I will never see the game as well as they do. And uh, I guess you could put Andy Powers in that uh, group, too, because Andy's your col you're a current uh, color announcer, and, uh, you know, he seems like the kind of guy that also gives you that similar type of analysis. Absolutely. You know, Andy um, sees the game as well as anyone, and I think one of the things that separates Andy from a lot of other um, analysts is his sense of humor. Sometimes right. it gets a little bit um, animated. He's been known uh, at, at times, but his sense of humor and his timing, he's very self-deprecating, you know, makes it, it makes the broadcast with Andy a lot of fun and very entertaining. Awesome stuff. We're talking with John Rish. He's the longtime uh, radio voice of the Boston College Eagles hockey team. Uh, John has also done uh, many jobs around Boston for uh, sports broadcasting for uh, the New England Sports Network. Uh, my name is John Leahy. You're listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. And uh, Andy, uh, John, before we get into uh, this coming weekend, I'd just like to get your thoughts about the pandemic and, and how it uh, influenced you and the work you do, and also being able to have the Beanpot back in Boston, as well as the hockey's playoffs as well. Yeah. I mean, I look back on and last year, and it's kind of like a blur. Like it was just so strange. I mean, everything was strange, right? We didn't get to go all the places we normally go. You didn't play anything close to what you would consider to be a normal schedule. And then whether we were calling games off of TV monitors or we were in the rink, depending on the situation, there are no fans there. You know, at the time we were like just so happy that they could play at all because remember when where we were coming from was, you know, we finished um, the regular season and then we're waiting for the playoffs to start and they're done. They're over. Like everything's right. canceled and it just kind of like blindsided everyone. And believe me, you know, the NCAA tournament for college hockey is the least of the world's problems uh, in 2020. But it just felt like, you know, somebody dropped a, a hammer on top of everyone. It, it just felt awful. And so when November rolled around last year and we could actually see a game, we were just so happy. But I'll tell you, this is so nice to be back in places where fans can come. I mean, family, friends, like I think of those families who's you know, kids work their whole life to be able to play college hockey and they couldn't even come and watch them play. And so to be able to have those opportunities back, I mean, you can't put a value on that. Yeah. How'd you like to be Merrimack last year, John? They had a COVID outbreak the last week of the regular season and they, they couldn't even be, get into the hockey's playoffs. Uh, oh, so no. yeah, that was, that was devastating. But uh, John, you get to do the bean pot every year. That's, that's such a thrill. Uh, talk to us about how exciting that is and, and how cool it is to be a part of that event every year. Yeah. It's one of those things that, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not from the area or you don't really have a connection to one of the four schools and you haven't had an opportunity to really immerse yourself in it, then I don't think you, you really quite understand. You know, I remember a long time ago, um, BC played in the Great Lakes Invitational. And back then it was uh, three Michigan schools. And then they just started, you know, inviting some fourth team from outside of Michigan and BC was one of the first teams that they invited and they told us, well, it's kind of like the bean pot. And I'm like, you know, this is not like the bean pot. You guys, <laughs> you don't understand that what the bean pot is. If you think that this is, you know, equivalent of the bean pot is nice tournament. It's a great tournament. It was Michigan and Michigan state. And I think we had Lake Superior there. Um, 
but it's not the bean pot, right? And so I don't I don't think there's anything quite like the bean pot um, for lots of reasons. Obviously, you've got the history, you've got the tradition, um, you've got the location. The timing of it is different because it comes later in the season, right? We're talking the first two Mondays in February. Right. Um, but for me, the most important thing about the bean pot in recent years is everyone is competitive now. Absolutely. And if I was a BC fan, I would love it if BC won the bean pot every year. But the reality is what's best for the tournament is for all four teams to be competitive and have a chance to win. Right. So for Harvard to be competitive, for Northeastern to be winning these bean pots and not have it be just Boston University winning all the time or Boston University and BC trading back and forth. Right. That's not good for the tournament. What's best for the tournament is to have all four teams with a chance to win. And that's the way it's been as of late. Yeah. And if Harvard keeps up the pace they're on, wow, they're going to be something. What do they get at? 16 goals in the first two games. So, uh, uh, that, that that's going to be a fun tournament. Uh, tournament. I always look forward to being there uh, as a spectator. Well, John, let's move on to uh, this weekend. Let's start with this Boston College team right now. The Eagles are four, three, and one. Uh, John, you guys split up in Vermont last weekend. Prior to that, you had a split against uh, two teams from Colorado, Colorado College and Denver. And uh, I, I look at that five to one win over Denver, and I think of how impressive that is. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Eagles so far? What's jumped out at you? <laughs> that we don't know what to expect. That they're <laughs> extremely inconsistent. Um, they have been inconsistent from game to game, and they have been inconsistent from within games, right? So if you were to look at their wins and even their tie, right, they tied Quinnipiac. So you say, okay, Quinnipiac's a pretty good team. They tied Quinnipiac, they beat Denver, they beat Northeastern. Like, those are all good wins. And those were impressive, solid wins and or ties, but then you see, okay, they allowed six goals to Bentley and five goals to Colorado College and then five goals in an overtime loss to Vermont. Right? I just named three teams that outside of those games against Boston College have really had a difficult time scoring this year. So those are, you know, as, as good as the 5-1 win over Denver looks, those other games are kind of like red flags to you. For example... Uh, Friday night in Vermont, Boston College led the game three nothing, and they ended up losing five four in overtime. So it's you know it's only November second. It's still early, but BC is still trying to figure out who they are. Right, they're not quite settled on what their identity is going to be. I think that they have the potential to figure out who they are, and they've got some good senior leadership, and I think eventually they'll get there. But right now, they're very inconsistent. One guy that jumps off the page at me is Jack McBain. He's got 14 points. Uh, He's uh, paced the offense. Uh, How vital has he been uh, for BC so far? Their best forward, without question. Um, And he has been physically dominant. He's a big guy. And he's been really, really good. And that's where their strength is. Their strength is up the middle, right? They've got a captain and two assistant captains. And those are their top three centers, you know, McBain, McLaughlin, and Patrick Giles. And so those are the guys that are leading the way. Now they just need, essentially, their wingers to be a little bit more consistent in terms of providing scoring. But those three guys, McBain, uh, Mark McLaughlin, and Patrick Giles, they're the ones that are going to kind of push them in the right direction. And when you look at the defensive side of things, John, the name that kind of leaps out at me is Drew Hellison. Uh, He's been good for a long time, hasn't he? Yeah, he took a huge step forward last year. 
you know, freshman year, you could see potential. Um, he didn't get uh, as much time in his freshman year as he did in his sophomore year. He was asked to do a lot more in his sophomore year. I think he had a little bit of a slow start to the season this year, which, you know, the bar for him has been set really high, you know, because he was regarded by the end of last season as one of the better defensemen in all of college hockey. And people thought, okay, junior year, now he's got an opportunity to really step up and be one of the top elite type defensemen across the country. Um, he had a really good game on Saturday night in Vermont, maybe his best game of the season. But you know, overall, when you look at the defensive core for Boston College last year heading in, you're like, hmm, I wonder if, if, if this group is going to be good enough. This year, they should be a strength, right? They, they should be a, a, the strength of the team. And that's the inconsistent part that, that's kind of hard to put your finger on sometimes is how come, you know, these, this, this group of six or seven, depending on how they put their lineup out that night, how come, you know, how can they let six goals or five goals against team A, B, or C? Uh, but Drew Hellison has been uh, really good. They need him to be good. Marshall Warren has also been really good for them as well. And let's talk about goaltending. Uh, Spencer Knight, what a season he had last year at Boston College. He leaves for the NHL. You get a transfer from Bowling Green, Eric Dopp. He's played uh, most of the games for the Eagles. Uh, how is he settling in? Okay. You know, he's not Spencer Knight, but but who is, right? I mean, not right. too many goaltenders can, um, you know, step off a college campus and then step into an NHL lineup, and that's what Knight did last year. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, we were spoiled. You know, we knew that Knight was good and we were really lucky to be able to watch him play night in and night out. But sometimes you don't realize just how good he was until A, he's not there anymore. And B, you know, you're watching him play at the next level. And Knight is a really, really special player. Um, Eric Dopp, I think, is a solid goaltender. He's not Spencer Knight. I don't think they need him to be Spencer Knight to be successful. You know, if if the, the bar was you have to come in and do everything that Spencer did, then you're just kind of setting yourself up for failure. Um, he's he's a different player than Knight, right? He's smaller. These days, you know, a lot of goaltenders, seems like every goaltender is huge. Um, he's a little bit on the smaller side, um, but he's very active and very experienced. You know, in these days of the transfer portal and extra years of eligibility to be able to get a goaltender that has had as much success as he did at Bowling Green come in as a graduate student, that's really valuable. Well, let's talk a bit about this upcoming series, uh, John, BC and Merrimack. Uh, you know, a lot of visiting teams, when they come into Lala Rink, uh, they have to adjust to the small rink, the small corners. Merrimack certainly tries to use that to their advantage. Uh, what do you think will play out this weekend as the two, these two teams play? The uh, the Warriors uh, seem to have enjoyed a small modicum of success against the Eagles at Merrimack. I know BC has the edge in uh, the all-time series. Merrimack has struggled uh, mightily down at Conti Forum, as most teams have. But uh, what do you look for this weekend, and what are your thoughts on Merrimack? Yeah, so it's hard, right? It's hard to predict. Um, my expectation is I think there'll be close games. I don't think that the set, like there's a huge separation, right? Last year, I thought Boston College was clearly one of the best teams in the league. And there was probably, you know, a, a small group at the top of the league with BC and, and UMass. And then there was a pretty big gap, right? I don't think that gap exists right now. 
for Boston College. I still think that they have the opportunity to put themselves, you know, into a position where they could have home ice for for the the playoffs, that type of thing. But I don't think there's any sort of gap between Boston College and um, teams that are in the middle or lower part of the league. I think that, that that's just how Hockey East is right now. There's a lot of parity. And I would be shocked if these games were not close, um, especially up in North Andover. You know, as you mentioned, that has been a difficult place to play for Boston College for as long as I can remember. Even if the, you know, wins and losses don't necessarily reflect that, if you watch the games, you know that, the, you know, points have not come easy for Boston College in North Andover. And I don't expect that to be the case this weekend. Well, John, last thing before I let you go, uh, I'd like to just get your uh, thoughts on working with Jerry York, uh, the legendary career. Uh, the question that Jerry has had, uh, the question is, what 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 does Jerry have left to do? You know, he's won national championships. He's been honored. He's in the National Hockey League Hall of Fame, and he's one of the most humble guys uh, you've ever had a chance to talk with. I'm looking forward to, to having a few words with him on Friday night, but you've been around Jerry a long, long time. Uh, give us your perception about what it's like uh, to be around Jerry. Uh, as you are and and just some thoughts on, on his legendary career well he's got nothing left to prove right i mean what does he have left to do he's he's got a, a game to win on friday night right. that sounds <laughs> cliche right it sounds you know like a smart aleck response and i don't mean it that way i mean it to illustrate like that's how he thinks that's what he's he's focused on right now is you know the next game is the most important game and that's the same way that he's been all along. And and if I can say one thing, it's that he's the same, right? He's the same as he was 24 years ago when I first got there. And he's probably the same as he was 50 years ago when he started coaching. And so, you know, that consistency and optimism has gone a long way. Um, good times, bad times. He doesn't get too high. He doesn't get too low. And he's always optimistic and he's still energetic. Um, he's the same guy, and, and that's that's the highest compliment I can give him. Great stuff, John. And I know when you're done uh, with Merrimack, I know you got to head down to Hartford, uh, <laughs> over to the XL Center. Uh, what do you think about broadcasting there, up on the roof there? Uh, some broadcasters love it, yeah. some hate it. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. I'm probably in the minority, but uh, what do you think about going down there? I, uh, what I don't like is when you're walking out, like you can feel the floor moving. <laughs> the vantage point is fine. I don't mind being high, especially if you've got a good angle and you can see everything. That's a little high. But but that part doesn't bother me. It's like walking out on that catwalk. If God forbid, if you're a little bit afraid of heights, you'd never make it to the broadcast location. Well, John, I'm going to give you an invitation. I had Chuck Caton on the podcast uh, a while back, so uh, I'm going to encourage you to listen to that episode because Chuck and I had a lot, a long talk about that building, and it, it, he really yeah. made some fascinating points. But uh, anyway, it looks like yeah. it, it, when you go up there, it looks like it. You, you you think like it probably looks exactly the same as the day that Chuck left. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the funny thing is, John, is that Chuck had no say in uh, being up there. A lot of people have the common perception that uh, you know he had some influence in being way up on top, but he didn't. Yeah, he was put up there, so uh, he made the best yeah. of it, just like everybody else, I suppose. Well, and that's probably a common refrain, right? How many broadcasters really get to? 
much of anything in terms of where they are. I mean, you look at what's happening these days around um, the NBA and, and even college basketball, right? Broadcasters aren't on the floor anymore. They're getting moved to the mezzanine or the corner or God knows where. And, you know, that's that part of the business is something that doesn't doesn't thrill me a whole lot. You know, I, I think that the broadcasters, yeah, do they pay a thousand dollars for their seat? No, but they should have the best seats in the house because, you know, the people that are watching and listening back home are relying on them to paint the picture. Absolutely. John, where can people listen to your broadcast of BC Hockey? Well, my wife listens online, so they tell me that's the best way to do it these days. Um, and the quality, you know, from back in the days when things first started streaming to now, it's like night and day. The quality and reliability to listen online uh, is fabulous. So if you go to, you know, bceagles.com, you can always listen online no matter where you are, um, no matter what. But if you happen to listen to terrestrial radio, 8.50 a.m. is where you can find the games. Excellent, John. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on. I can't thank you enough for being with us on the podcast. Looking forward to seeing you Friday night. Uh, I'll be down at BC as a fan on a Saturday. Merrimack has not uh, – uh, they're not allowing us to do road games this year. So I will be there in the booth next to you uh, taking uh, copious notes. But uh, at any rate, John, thanks so much for being with us. We truly appreciate it. All right, John. Good to talk to you as always. All right. Coming up next week on the podcast, we'll visit with Larry Mahoney. He is the color analyst of Maine Hockey as the Warriors will head to Orono after this week. For John Risch, my special guest, I'm John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on Airing It Out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, Rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.